Welcome to the DadWork Podcast. My name is Kurt Storing, your host and the founder of DadWork. This is episode number 53, Navigating Culture, Developing Autonomy, and Making Good Choices with Andy Fawcett. We go deep today talking about overcoming feelings of failure and inadequacy as a father and a husband, mental reframes for dads, raising a child abroad in a culturally diverse environment, identifying your strengths and your partner's strengths so you can each focus on what only you can uniquely give your child, being able to navigate cultural expectations with your spouse, allowing yourself some time off from work to reassess your priorities and figure out what your next move should be. Understanding the difference between a day off and a vacation and changing our work attitudes, personal autonomy and how fitness plays a role, and allowing yourself the freedom of going with what feels right and what you know is necessary for your growth and authentic self-expression. A lifelong martial artist and former school teacher, Andy's deeply concerned with autonomy and fitness education. As CEO of GMB Fitness, he's dedicated to providing an open, accessible culture for both clients and staff to enjoy exploring more of what they're truly capable of. You can find Andy online at gmb.io. This was a fun conversation because Andy and I are both part of this uh, community for entrepreneurs called the DC, the Dynamite Circle, and he lives a much different life than most of us and most of the guests that I've had on this podcast. And you'll hear why in a moment, but I loved listening to his intentional thought behind each thing he does and each decision he's making. And it was refreshing, to be honest. And if this is not sort of how you think about things, I challenge you to ask the questions that Andy asks himself to figure out what the best way to live for you and your family are. And dads, before we get into it, I'm reminding you that we are actually starting one of our men's groups today. The other one starts tomorrow. This is going out on February 2nd, 2022. There is still time for one or two of you to join the Wednesday or the Thursday group. You will miss today's meeting, obviously, because this is probably coming out while we are meeting. But you can still get in next week if you hurry. Go to dad.work slash group and apply to join our men's group. We've got a Wednesday morning Pacific time, a Thursday evening Pacific time group, and I want you in there if it feels right for you. We go deep talking about all sorts of things in our life. We support each other through the thick and the thin. And for many men, this is the only place in their life where they can share everything and anything and get the support and the feedback of other men who have probably gone through something similar. And if they haven't, they can at least hold space to make sure that that man feels safe, seen, secure in all of his interactions with the group. So this is the last chance. We've already started, but we've got one or two spots left depending on the day. Go to dad.work slash group and apply now. All right. With that being said, you probably won't hear about that for a little while because we are starting. So let's get into episode 53 with Andy Fawcett. Okay. I'm here with Andy Fawcett. Thank you so much for joining me. Another member of this amazing group, the Dynamite Circle that I am part of with you. And man, I was so grateful that you said you wanted to chat because you've got an interesting sort of uh, story as a father and how you raise your daughter. And so, yeah, man, I'm excited to hear how this all turned out for you and maybe go into your business as well. So thank you very much for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. Definitely. It's always nice to uh, talk to anyone from the DC. It's an interesting group of people and always, always fun to talk about fatherhood and that whole journey and challenge. Uh, you know, it, it's become something that uh, has defined me. I think for most of us, it becomes something that is a, a big part of who we think of ourselves being. So yeah, definitely. It's a big deal. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's actually probably better than defining ourselves as, you know, something to do with work, for example, there's a lot of identity wrapped up in that. And so if our identity becomes fatherhood, like that's a pretty good identity. I think that's like the calling for a lot of men. Um, what do you think about that? Is that like yeah. a greater purpose? I, <laughs> we're already into the meaning of life. Wow. <laughs> like well, hey, we go it. deep. We go deep right away. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so yeah, identity, you you called it, right? Identity is really hard. And we all have identities for ourselves. We all have multiple identities for ourselves. And they're all sort of hanging in a balance all the time. There's a lot of ways that you know one identity can take up more of the pie, so to speak. And that can become, you know, pathological for for people if it's doing so in a way that causes stress or causes us to lose sight of our health or our relationships or something. Right. So, I mean, I've had periods where my defining uh, primary identity was as a business person or as someone who's into learning or someone who's into training his body uh, at different times. There was a few years where I primarily primarily identified as a musician. That was the thing that I was most into. Um, and I don't think any of these are necessarily like meaning of life level better or worse than the other. But I think that, you know, identifying as a father is something that's a little less egocentric for one thing. Uh, it's, it's putting you, it's putting your identity firmly uh, in, in the, on the side of being in relation to other people. And it also is inherently future looking and legacy focused because you're trying to think of how the things you do are going to contribute to someone who's hopefully going to be living longer than you right and so i think that those do put it you know in in a more meaningful sort of you know set set of parameters you know even if you're looking at it from a purely logical standpoint but also i would say you know emotionally my own experience of it is that it has probably been more fulfilling to identify as a father than any of the other things that i have yeah and actually that's a, a good um i mean i don't know how we go deeper than that but let's go into uh, your your general experience as a father um Emotionally, emotional satisfaction as being a father is very interesting. Um, but I'm, I'm generally interested in like what this journey looked like for you. Obviously, you've thought about it quite a lot. Obviously, you're very intentional about it. But was it an easy transition into fatherhood? <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard because it's one of those things that you can't ever be ready for it. And, you know, I've, I've heard and given this advice to people when they worry about, oh, I'm not ready to be a father. And, you know, many smarter, older people told me that you're not ever going to be ready. So don't wait for that, uh, which is is something that I completely fully believe. I don't think that it's something that you can really be ready for. But I did think about it a lot before I became a father. And for a long time, I thought that it probably wasn't something that I was really interested in. But, you know, we we develop and grow and change our uh, our perception of things as life goes on. And so into my early 30s, uh, my wife and I, I got married and my wife and I, you know, after a couple of years started talking about, you know, having a kid and it just seemed like it would be the right thing. You know, I had, I had moved past the, the phase, I guess, or the, the period where I was focused more on myself. I had gotten married. I had started a, a business. 
and it seemed like, you know, child would be another thing that was sort of continuing that kind of evolution, both for myself and how I was interacting with other people. And so, yeah, I thought a whole lot about it before our daughter was born. Of course, everyone has ideas, fantasies, um, fears, you know, and, and most of these things, you know, just as you can't be ready for it, none of these can, things can really actually reflect reality. There, there are a lot of just anxieties and fantasies, and you don't know if they're actually real or not. You can read all the books by the experts, but it doesn't really tell you anything until the rubber hits the road. And so that's been, you know, my process for the past, uh, you know, almost 10 years is really just trying to uh, put the rubber on the road, feel where that coefficient of friction is, and, um, you know, put into practice the the best things that I can to the degree that I'm capable as, as a, a human person of doing, you know? So, I mean, my experience has really just been trying to discover what really is actually possible for me to be able to be as good a father as I can, uh, you know, with respect to the other parts of my identity that I also have to keep up as well. You know, it's, it's always that challenge and balance. So yeah, I, I had a lot of ideas and thought about it, but at the end of the day, like you can spend your whole life with people saying, Oh, you're so good with kids. You'll be a great dad. And then, you know, you have your own kid and you're like, I am a horrible father, you feel like, right? You know? oh, I'm yeah. getting angry all the time. I don't know what to say. I can't calm her down. Like, I don't know how to negotiate, you know, all these things that you thought you were good at. But then when it's your own child, you're not good at them anymore because <laughs> it's a whole different relationship. So there was a lot of that, uh, you know, all those expectations and, you know, like I said, just straight up fantasies turned out to mostly be false. You know, a lot of things I knew I would absolutely do, you know, I would absolutely be every day I would be doing some form of physical exercise with my child. We would have stimulating conversations, right? Uh, no, not really. A lot of times we just watch some damn YouTube and eat chips. And I don't really think that that's a failure now, <laughs> you know? But maybe 15 years ago, me would have looked at that and been like, no, nah, man. Yeah, that's an interesting transition. There's, um, I think it was like the Daily Dad is this newsletter put out by Ryan Holiday, and he does some stuff about stoicism. But one of the things he talks about is garbage time. And it's like just being together, even if it's like you're watching YouTube or, you know, eating chips. That's, you know, that's great. That's connective. It's like right. just what you're doing in real daily life. But there's this level of presence I think you can bring to that. And is that something that you have tried to do rather than well, let's just veg out and watch YouTube and eat chips? Do you try to bring this like really mindful attention to these things? Yeah. What I've found, I mean, there's like nature and nurture and all of these things. And there's a lot of stuff that's clearly genetic and a lot of things that are clearly environmental, right? But what I've found is that whatever my logical mind tells me I should be teaching my daughter, that will never, ever, ever outweigh the natural experience of being around me as many hours as she is every day, right? She's going to absorb who I am and what I do a lot more strongly than what I say and what I try to get her to do. So 
yeah, garbage time is actually a good way to look at it. Uh, sometimes we, we all as humans need some garbage time, right? And so being able to spend that with my daughter sometimes is nice. Um, but mostly, yes, presence. And it doesn't have to be fully like focused presence. I, I can't give 100% of my attention to anything. I'm, I grew up in the 80s. You know, like I, <laughs> my brain is not capable of 100% mindfulness on any particular thing. And, uh, you know, apologies to my, my business partners and my wife and my daughter, but it's just reality. So I, I can give her some continuum between zero and 100%, right? And it fluctuates. I can give her 90% of my attention. I can give her 10% of my attention, but spending time together and trying to be as good a person as I can in that moment uh, is probably, in my current opinion, the more realistic and the more honest uh, approach to trying to influence her or teach her or any of those things, right? Then, Then trying to decide on a thing and contrive an experience in which she will become whatever. Maybe somebody who's who's far more uh, intelligent than me can pull that off. But I, I feel like just being the best version of me that I know how to be in that moment and being able to be that with her, with whatever amount of attention I'm able to muster for her at the time is probably as good as I can do. I feel like it's probably more than adequate. Right. And that's so, that's such amazing self-awareness. And it's like, it almost gives permission to hear you say this to guys who might otherwise think like, oh, I have to give the hundred percent attention all the time, or I, I need to be plugged in and I need to feel shameful if I can't get my head to slow down. Right. And I'm just hearing this like, really like, yeah, this is how it is. It's like, like brutal acceptance. Is that something that like you've cultivated on purpose or like, how does this come around? Cause you just seem like super easy with it. Well, <laughs> a lot of practice, <laughs> a lot of practice for giving myself for fucking things up. Um, you know, uh, yeah. Shame you mentioned is, is a big one. And I, I think that, and, and not to downplay it, but we talk about women having, you know, a lot of shame from society and it absolutely a hundred percent. But I think that it's, it's also, we need to recognize that men and especially fathers feel a lot of shame too. I actually haven't talked about this much, but I've done a little bit of therapy. And one of the the real standout moments to me was uh, I was just reflecting really strongly on my relationship with my daughter. And I don't remember exactly what triggered it, but just a ton of guilt just came out. And it was a hugely cathartic thing. And I realized how much guilt about just generalized guilt, not about any specific thing, but all of my failures as a father, all the times I didn't listen to her or give her you know, the love and protection that she felt she needed in the moment or whatever, all of these things that I was holding on to, and I was able to let go of, of a chunk of that, which, you know, was, was huge for me. And I, I don't know if it was necessarily that specific moment or just the process of coming to terms with the fact that, yeah, I do feel a lot of shame and guilt around my failures as, as a man and as a father and everything. I think we all do because we have all these expectations of, you know, what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to say, what we're supposed to look like, all the things that we should never, ever, ever, you know, mess up. But we do because we're human and that's life and that's how things are. And I, th- I think I've been lucky that I, I have had some some role models and some people that I've seen make mistakes and be okay. And 
have actually, you know, shown me that they've forgiven me when I made mistakes too. Yeah. No, that, that this is uh, shaping up to be like this weight release from the shoulders of men. I can just imagine, like, there's this very clear permission almost from just what you're saying to go there and feel those things and relieve yourself of the burden. And I tell guys this all the time, like in my course, I have a couple of reframes, just mental reframes to get guys like, oh, right. Like, first of all, this is super hard. You're not going to get it right all the time. Second of all, you've never done this before. Even today, like my kids are almost nine, seven, and two. I will never have had a nine, seven, and two-year-old. In fact, tomorrow, it'll be a new day because I've never had an eight and, you know, 11 months, whatever it is. And it's a new time. So like give yourself a little bit of grace. And that's not an excuse like not to get better, but it's just like this release because if you're so claustrophobic with this feeling of anxiety, I've experienced at least personally, like it's hard to actually get out there and do what you need to do. Right. Yeah. So, And that's a really good point too. I mean, it's never going to be the same, even from day to day, as quickly as kids grow and develop as, as fast as their, their brains are changing and their bodies are changing and everything. There's very, you know, they've got to be almost adults before that even slows to a point where one day to the next, you're having the same relationship with them, you know, let alone your own development, which, you know, recognize it or not is continuing, you know? (laughs) So yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. And I I wanted to, you mentioned, uh, what was the wording? I think it was like expectations or societal pressures or something like that. And I mean, you don't fit the mold of the typical, you know, Western father. You're, you don't even live in the West anymore. And, you know, I being in the DC uh, have traveled myself. I spent two years in Thailand and Eastern Europe and we traveled and my kids were there and that was fantastic. But you're raising a child in a completely different country from most of the listeners right now. And so I think it would be fun to get into that, what that looks like, like what is raising a child internationally like? And is there a good starting off point there? Do you need a probe? Like, how would you how would you go about explaining this to us? Well, I mean, the short story is I watched Karate Kid when I was when it came out when I was seven. And I knew I had to do karate. and I did it for a long time. And I, I got to come here for some uh, competitions and kept coming back and eventually you know moved to Japan. Um, and during that time, I, I met the lady who would become my wife, and we got married. And so that is the the main reason why I have this connection to Japan. And so I say that because I think that, especially if we're talking about people in DC, there's a lot of people that are far more widely traveled than I am, and have been to many more countries, speak like five or six languages, and uh, I've got like one and a half languages, you know. Um, <laughs> And so uh, I, I wouldn't put myself forward as, as an expert on internationalization or travel or any of those things, but I've been around a little bit and I've spent, let's say, I've been in Japan off and on for like more than 15 years. Like if I put it all together, I'd say my my in Japan time is, is a little over 10 years, right? Uh, spread out in like two or three year chunks. This is the longest that I've spent in one in, in Japan and it's where we're a little over three years right now. And so what happened was when my wife and I got married, we were living in Osaka, which is a great city. It's awesome, but it's also not pretty. It's it's gritty. It's concrete. It's dirty. It's awesome. 
But after a few years there, we got to the place where we're like, well, now we're married. Where do we want to live? Where can we go? The business was starting, but it was it was kind of okay. It was, you know, it wasn't great, but like, well, let's live someplace pretty. So we moved to Hawaii. We thought we would go for like a year, just check it out, stayed for eight, you know, uh, and we liked it. It was great. And while we were there, we had our daughter. So our daughter is, you know, mixed race, American and Japanese. And um, Hawaii is actually a really, really good place to grow up that way. A lot of people there are, are mixed from different cultures, Asian, Japanese, Filipino, Chinese, and uh, of course, native Hawaiian population as well. So we felt really comfortable and at home there, but we also knew that our daughter wasn't going to get the real Japanese side of her identity and master the language for another thing uh, without spending some real time in Japan during her formative years, right? So that's what it really came down to is that when our daughter, when we were looking at about time to start thinking about elementary school, we decided that that would be a great time to come here and for her to do elementary school in Japan. So that's why we moved here. And we moved specifically to Tokyo because, well, in Japan, it's the center of a lot of things, but it's also it's like the biggest city in the world, right? Any experience you could ever want to have, you could have in Tokyo, right? We have literally everything here. It's amazing. So there's also that. But yeah, that that's the main thing is kind of how I came to be here and how my family is like it is and why we're living the way we are right now. I think my wife and I talk about this uh, quite a bit. And you know, the next step is that we also want her, before she becomes an adult, to spend at least another two or three years in America and, and develop a little bit more of uh, understanding of that culture and also <laughs> communicating in English. But you know that side of her identity as well, because spending the first six years in Hawaii, that's America, yes, but it's it's a pretty insulated and different part of America. And she was, you know, an infant until six years old. So very formative, but also different from experiencing that as somebody who is older and, you know, more savvy about themselves and, and society and all of that too, right? Yeah, no, that's amazing, man. Like we actually, we did the same sort of thing. We were in Thailand for a few years. The kids were, our oldest was in like a preschool there or some like outdoor artsy preschool thing. And it's like, they, we could get them into like the local Montessori or this might be the time to sort of get back and start them in what we, where we want to live. Um, right. And it's different for us because, you know, there's only one sort of culture behind it. But are there things that are more challenging? Because like, I can just imagine logistically, um, like, does your daughter speak both Japanese and English? Yeah. So when she was born, we spoke a little bit of both. Uh, but then when we uh, when she started talking more, we focused a little bit more on Japanese because we figured living in America as we were at the time. Uh, and then when she started going to a preschool, all of her friends spoke English and the teachers spoke English. So she would get English more naturally. Uh, but we wanted her to also learn Japanese. So we spoke Japanese to her a lot at home. So her her spoken language was pretty good. But Again, not being in Japan, not doing the same things that small Japanese children typically do and having those same 
experiences, watching the same TV shows, et cetera, there were things that were missing, uh, you know, gaps that she had that you, you can't recognize really until you come here and are part of it. So even though everyone always said, oh, she speaks fine, but there were words that she didn't know. There were cultural things that she was unaware of. And so the first two years of elementary school for her were were challenging, actually, even though she, you know, quote unquote, spoke Japanese, uh, but she had to learn the the letters and the basic phonetic reading and writing from scratch, which a lot of kids had had a bit of a head start on her for that. So the challenge really was technically linguistic, but not so much communication ability. It's, you know, catching up to parody with, you know, native level of, of fluency and immersion in a culture is different from just being able to get by in something. And so that was definitely a challenge. And it took like a good two years. There's still things that she, you know, probably lags behind uh, some of her, her peers in, in her class or age range. But then there's other things where, of course, she's got a lot more experience. She's been to like six or seven different countries you know, she had four stamps in her passport before she turned a one year old. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so there's other things where she, she more than makes up for it and other things, but like, yeah, that was definitely a challenge is just getting to kind of, uh, communicative and educational parody with her peers did take time. That's the thing that you can't, you can't neglect. If, if we move back to the States and she's in junior high and she takes what civics or social studies or whatever, she doesn't know who who uh, she doesn't know there were two President Adams. She doesn't know who Monroe was. She doesn't know anything about the Trail of Tears. Like she doesn't know any of the the good or bad things about American history, really. You know, yeah. uh, that's all stuff that's going to be completely missing. I mean, she can speak English just fine, but she has none of these uh, things that uh, you know we would take for granted for a child of you know like ten to twelve to know about America and history because she's learning the Japanese version of it here. Right. Okay. So the thing that I'm sort of picking up on here that I think we can sort of bring this back to for everyone listening is that there's this very intentional thought process that has to go behind because you're seeing what she's missing out on very clearly. Yeah. Like for most people, they make a choice. It's just how most people do it. And you don't really see what you're missing in the blind spots. And I think this is probably both a blessing and a curse for you guys because it's like, okay, we got to make some hard choices. She's not going to have the context. She's not going to be able to have like the memes for lack of a better term. Like she's not going to get the cultural significance of some things. And she's got passports and she speaks two languages. And like, she's going to be able to see and choose eventually what lifestyle she prefers. Is it Japanese? Is it American? Is it somewhere in between? So like, what were some of these guiding principles or values that you use to make these trade-offs? Right. So, I mean, I guess that's the thing is like culture is invisible to us most of the time, right? Uh, If we're living in it until we change to a different culture and then we recognize it. It's like when when light changes medium from air to a solid, like when it goes through glass, it bends. You know, your perception of things bends when you shift cultures. And so we always knew that my wife and I being from different nations, different cultures, you know, speaking different languages – that we have different thought processes, different things. And one of the really great, I I wouldn't call it an original insight, but one of the things that I think has been a guiding principle for us as a family is that this is a terrific strength. We are 
we have differences. There's challenges involved. There are different expectations of our roles in in our cultures that we've had to you know discuss and confront and figure out how to how to navigate. But it's also a strength. We have two nations that we can live in, you know, indefinitely. We have uh, two two ways we can com- communicate. We have different different cultures we can rely on. Uh, we have more more kind of vocabulary culturally than a typical family does, and that gives us a lot of opportunity for different perspectives or different solutions to problems, and it gives us a lot of optionality. And so, this is the thing with our daughter is we recognize that this was a strength that we had as a couple and as a family. And when we really started thinking about what do we want to give our child, one of the big things was we want to give her the benefit of understanding both of these things to at least a certain degree of proficiency and being able to make the best decisions for ourselves, for herself, how to use that wider sort of, uh, that, that breadth of experience and to, to develop the optionality there, but also know how to make those decisions on how she wants to choose where she wants to live or where she wants to be or what kind of career she wants to have or what kind of relationships she, she wants to have. Right. So, and, and this, I guess, goes back to, you know, what I would say is probably a, a main theme of, of my life and myself as a person is, you know, freedom is great. But then we also have to balance that with making decisions about what we want, right? And I think that in in my mind, that's what autonomy means, right? It's it's where where optionality and decision making kind of meet, and that's what I really want to give my daughter is a high degree of autonomy over how she chooses to live her life and the the experiences that she wants to have for herself. Mm, amazing, yeah, that was very similar to like part of the reason why we wanted to travel with the kids to right. give them that understanding that they now can see a lived experience that you don't have to just do the nine to five cubicle thing. Like, oh yeah, I lived in Thailand. Like it's normal. Like, yeah, why not just do that again? Or like, let's do something crazy. We don't have to do the normal thing. It's giving them the options based on real lived experience, which is super powerful. And do you have like actual conversations with her about this? So she's like, okay, here's what they're doing. Or is it just like osmosis? Uh, It's a little of both. I mean, to a degree, she does take it for granted somewhat, you know? But she also does know, and this is one of the benefits of her being in a regular Japanese public school, is that she also sees her her friends and she's able to, you know, she's she's noticed that there's differences, right? Beyond my father doesn't look like all the other fathers. Beyond that, she's noticed that there are differences in the way we live and the decisions that we make, right? The way we think about travel or the way we think about how we want to spend money, you know? Uh, do we want to buy this or that, or do we want to go do this thing? Or are we afraid to spend money on things? Or do we think of this as an investment in something that's going to to give us a greater payoff? Right. And none of these things are right or more right or wrong than other you know ways of looking at it. I, I, I'm not saying that I have it all figured out in terms of like the correct eth- ethical stance on all things, but I we do. She she's noticed that we make decisions differently. Is what I'm getting at. And so we have discussions about that sometimes. I mean, I, I try not to, to preach to her or tell her, you know, this is why we're smarter than all your friends' parents. You know, like that probably yeah. wouldn't make her any friends <laughs> put that in her head. And I don't right. really believe that either. But yeah, we it's a thing that she notices and she's she's nine and she'll be 
from here becoming more and more socially aware and focused, right? That's what happens at the next kind of stage for uh, cognitive development and especially for, for young women. It's something that's really important. Um, so yeah, we do talk about it. She notices, but I, I try not to, to preach about it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's probably the smart move, <laughs> no matter how right we think we are. Uh, right. You know, I would love to think that we're me. making all the right moves, but I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, you're probably making them for yourself and you also are aware enough to figure out, you know, how to deal with them when they're not the right moves, which I think is all we can really ask for. Um, right. Speaking of conversations, though, I'm wondering, like, how do you navigate these maybe not conflict is a too strong of a word, but these differences with the cultural expectations with your wife, like what do those conversations look like? Do you have a style of communication that seems to work well? Can you walk us through something like that? Man, you know, I'll be honest. It's not something that I really did probably very well and definitely not something that we began with any kind of intentionality. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's a thing that we, it seems obvious to us now, but it didn't until we experienced conflict around uh, different expectations we had for each other. And, you know, like Japan, I would say, and, and this is not completely accurate and probably not fully flattering, but I would say Japan in some ways lags like 10 to 15 years behind American culture in terms of, say, gender equality for example, right? So the the gender relationships and expectations of the husband or the wife, for example, are, well, you know, from American standpoint, you might say antiquated, right? And so it's the, the, the expectations of those roles would be, you know, the woman stays home, takes care of the kids, the man, you know, focuses on making money. And luckily, my wife and I don't really feel that way. Uh, so it wasn't anything where we had conflict there. But then as the business started to grow and things like that happened, and then when we decided to have a child, well, my wife did stop working. And though so for, for a couple of years, she actually felt really guilty about it because she felt like she had to be contributing more. But as the business started doing well, I was like, well, look, actually, you don't need to. We're okay. And honestly, if I have to take time away from running the company to do like, you know, shopping or cleaning or things like that. And not that I'm above them. I, I actually really like washing dishes for, I don't know why, but, uh, you know, if I'm having to take time away from running the company to do these things, actually that loses us more money than you have the potential to make in any kind of career. And this is, you know, for her being a green card resident in Hawaii at the time, you know, so her, her career options were very limited. Uh, so not that she's not capable of doing more, but on balance, you know, we had to really look at it logically and it took us like a few months to really like work through this and figure out it's okay for her to be, you know, have the traditional role that we both thought we were so evolved past, you know, but it was okay for her to actually like, you know, backslide. I don't know. I don't know what it is for her to take the traditional role and for me to take the traditional role in that. But then also I'm not working outside of the home either. I'm, I'm working, but now, or at least the past you know, couple of years, I'm working primarily from home, which is also a really different thing. And like in Japanese culture, work means you go to a place and you put butt in seat and you spend time there, right? That is, that is work. 
and then you you go out drinking with your coworkers and stuff and come back really late. Like that's what you get paid for as a salary man in Japan. So my daughter, you know, how does she explain to her friends that, oh yeah, my dad just stays home all day and drinks a lot of coffee and reads books, you know, <laughs> which is, you know, accurate, but <laughs> it's not that I'm not working while I do these things. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's, um, again, it's like intentionality, right? Like you just bring this up and don't be scared of it. Has that been sort of the driving force? Like you just go there? Yeah. I mean, like I said, a lot of things, you know, came up as, as conflict at first and it not, not like we just had shouting matches about it, but we, we reckon over time stress developed and we would, would avoid saying things to each other and, and realize that we weren't really fully relating and we had to figure out what the hell was going on, you know? And then, then when we talk about it and we figure out what kind of the source of these things are, then, okay, we've learned a thing together now, right? But yeah, we, we do have to be intentional about it because just like culture can be invisible, I think our relationships with people can be invisible unless we notice that there's something that needs work. You know, it's like, you don't, if your body feels fine, you don't think that you need to stretch or work out really. Right. It's, it's when you develop knee pain that you're like, Oh shit, what do I do about this? You know, it's only when you have back pain that you really start thinking about hip mobility. Most of the time you don't really worry about spending too much time sitting down, but then when you have a problem, so this is, this is a thing is like, we don't recognize we don't worry about pain unless we have it. You can't, it's like you don't recognize an absence of a thing. And so that's, that's the same thing with conflict and with like relationship problems and like communication problems and all of this is recognizing a lack of something is really hard until that tension builds to the point that now you're feeling a pain and then you have to address it. Right. And we've been really lucky that I think we have addressed many of the pains, but Obviously, there's always going to be more and it's always going to be a continuing thing that we have to return to again and again. Yeah, yeah, no, that's um, one of the things that I, I love about this podcast is that it's a, uh, an, a a way for me to remind guys to look at parts of their lives like that, right? So that when the, the typical route is you get hit by a Mack truck and then you make a change. And sometimes it's too late. Like we had a guy, uh, Brandon Archer on episode two in here who had a heart attack in like his forties. And then he was like, wow, I, there's some things I need to change. And he got lucky that he survived, but like there are things in your life, whether it's relationship, uh, you know, relation to yourself, relationship with your child, how you're parenting, your fitness, your health, like all of these things can be addressed now without having to be hit with a two by four or the Mack truck or anything like that. And it's so hard to find them, but this is just like a pattern interrupt for anyone listening to just like check in, meditate a little bit, introspect, journal about each section of your life, do a regular quarterly check-in, like do something to get in front of these issues. And I guess speaking of quarterly check-ins, do you have any like personal check-ins that you do or like, what is your planning? Like? Yeah. And I only ask because like, you know, business owner DC, you might have something or, you know, maybe, maybe not. So it, it's funny because like, I, I always think I should be much more rigorous about this than I am. And, you know, I've taken, I've taken courses, uh, on things, you know, like I've, I've bought the, the planning journals and whatnot, and I follow through with these things somewhat for a while. Uh, and sometimes I'll, I'll be able to follow through with them long enough to get something out of them. Other times I, I just can't make it stick. Um, 
I, I do try to have periodically, like every month to six weeks, I try to have a couple days blocked out on my calendar for just kind of thinking about things, right? I don't really tend to get too hung up on the process of it because I find that the things I need change. I have done some exercises and tried to come up with sort of a longer range vision of what's really important to me. And I do review that sometimes who I want to be in like, you know, you think like 20 years from now, well, when you're 20, you know, 20 years from now, you're going to be in your prime. I'm, I'm 44, 20 years from now, I'm going to be dead. All right. Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) Not that old yet, but you know, the, the timelines significance changes too, as you, as you age. And so, you know, I don't really know what the right process is, but I do try to take time and sometimes I'll review like where I want to be in the future. Sometimes I'll, I'll find that I am in a place where I feel like I need to look back or, and, and, you know, over the last like quarter or year or something. And sometimes I just know, like, I really need to address this area. Like I I really need to think about my health now or, uh, the last, the last six months I've actually done really well at, uh, you know, improving my health. I feel stronger and more flexible than I have in years. I've actually done some endurance training, which I've avoided for like 15 years because I fucking hate it. Uh, and so I'm doing really well in that. And so I, I know that I need to probably spend a little bit more time focused on what I can do to, you know, improve my relationship with my wife or something, right? Like sometimes it'll be really obvious I need to focus on a specific area, but I I don't really have a process is what I'm getting at, but I do make time to, you know, introspect and and plan and think on that stuff. And I think that what what happens is just having that time allows me to use it for whatever uh whatever I I specifically need at that time, you know? Yeah, no, that, that makes sense just based on sort of what I'm picking up is that you're, you seem to be like forward moving and like sort of uh, in the flow of the business and whatever needs to get done. And like, maybe that's all it takes. You know, sometimes for me, I like a little bit more like rigid structure, a little bit more planning and, and maybe that's bad. Maybe it's like my controlling nature, you know? So what I've been doing in December of this year and what I try to do each December is I take some structured time to like set out my goals, do the 10 year vision thing, get my values aligned. And then I'll just like putt around for a couple of weeks and I'll just mm-hmm. think, and I'll just have this, like at times it will feel extremely unproductive and I'll almost get like low grade anger. Like, Oh, why aren't I doing something? But it's like, I know I just need to sit with it and days yep. will go by. And then it's suddenly like a week goes past and it's like, Oh, now I've downloaded everything I need to move forward. Um, so like, I, I, I don't know if there's a question attached to this other than like, how did, how have you cultivated this sense of sort of ease? Cause you just seem like you're on top of things, you know, like you've, you've, you're living your life. You're the author of your life and, and maybe not, but you tell me like, you seem very on top of things. Uh, don't, don't say that to my team. They, they will have uh, <laughs> a very different perception probably. Now, I think it, it depends on on what you're talking about. Like, I I feel like I am doing well enough at most things right now that I don't really have to to push too hard on stuff. Now that's seasonal though, and I don't mean in yearly. I mean it's it's uh, it's a temporal thing. It's a phase. It'll change. I I had periods where you know I worked twenty hour days. Like that's kind of part of the thing. I've I've had periods where I got obsessed about this or that. 
And right now, everything is well going well enough that I'm trying to really focus on not being really too not pushing too hard and not being very driven by anything. That's kind of kind of my my personal uh, yoga right now, I guess. But I'm sure there will be a period in the future where I do like want to focus on something very specific. And I don't know, it might be business, it might be something else. And I'll probably devote a few years to that again. So I, I think it's probably just this is the time I'm at right now, where I am in a pretty, pretty easygoing phase. And it's not not like I've ascended to the peak of Maslow's peer hierarchy or anything like that, but uh, my basic needs are met. Uh, my family is basically happy and healthy. We're very satisfied with where we're at living and the way that our days are going right now. So I feel like I can be a little bit relaxed about it. But, you know, like, like you're saying, you need some of that time sometimes to sort of stew and let things marinate and see where you need to go next, right? Like I know people that have sold businesses for life-changing amounts of money and then they don't know what to do next and they try to jump into this project or that project. And sometimes you need to take two, three, five years off just messing around to just know what is important to you, what you want to do next, if anything, right? You know, you go on vacation and you go somewhere for like one night and then you check out at 10 a.m. and you leave. You haven't relaxed. You, know? you need a certain amount of days uh, to really be actually having recreation. Uh, you know, we, we have this remote work culture. My company, people are all over the world. We've been remote since 2010, you know, um, and one of the things that's really hard for people to get that takes years for people to really get to change their work habits is the difference between taking a day off and actually taking a vacation. You know, people after a couple of years will still apologize. Like, oh, I have to take a day off. Like, I don't notice days that you're on or off. I could not care less. I don't even know what day of the week it is most of the time. I, I <laughs> you know, I need, I rely on my calendar to tell me if there's anything I'm supposed to do. But you have to, when you, you'd think about like really resting. You need like two weekends bookending a period of not working. You can't work Monday and then take Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday off and say that you rested. It just doesn't work. I, you know, the concept of time and weekends and all these things are, you know, that's, Oh, this is uh, some cultural, this is an industrial revolution thing. You know, it's, it's antiquated. It's not real. Yes. It's completely social construct. I get that, but we live in that social construct. So we do need to actually take time off within that social construct, right? <laughs> you need to take nine continuous days off work for it to be a vacation. Yeah, no, I um, I love that because in sort of a meta point, this is what we talk about a lot in doing sort of the healing work and the growth work that sort of it, it, that is required to become a better man, partner, and father, which is sort of the point of of dad work. And I learned this the hard way. Like I was doing all the things in my time off because I I sold a part of my portfolio a year and a bit ago, and I took some time off. But I didn't actually take any time off. Like I didn't actually do. I didn't. I was never in right. time off. I was doing so much, like meditating, so that I could stretch, so that I could work out, so that I could journal. Like do, 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 do. And even in the times when I wasn't working, I was like scheming, and I didn't take yeah. any time off until it got to this breaking point where I'm like months into my like so-called sabbatical, where I've done right. nothing restful. 
And I've like started this other business, which ended up being a terrible idea. And then I like ended up quitting that and I failed at that. And then like my life blew up for a while. And then it was like, oh, you're supposed to rest. Oh, and now I get it. So like mm-hmm. it took me forever to find it's being huge. rather than doing and integrating all the stuff that had happened to me. Yeah. Integrating. That's a really good way to look at it. And you can't rush that. You can't force it. There's no process for it. You, you can't meditate from six to 9am every morning, then do 45 minutes of hot yoga, eat a breakfast with 28 grams of protein. That (laughs) is not going to take you to enlightenment. You have to stew, you have to let time and, and space, let your brain do the things it needs to do. You know, and I, I say brain to also mean heart, gut, all of the nervous system things that are are working on us all the time, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. that I, that experience that you're talking about is, I think, very very common for people, and especially those of us who happen to be entrepreneurs or you are know, driven to make things. We talk about taking a sabbatical, and we're like, "What am I going to do? How am I going to use this sabbatical time effectively?" You know, <laughs> yeah, like exactly. oh, wrong idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The um, next thing that I want to talk about just before we get uh, to our time at the top of the hour here is this um, this idea that you sent to me, which is how we look at fitness and physical autonomy as a component of overall personal autonomy. Um, right. And I've like I've I've looked at your site. I've tried to like identify exactly what you guys do and was really interested because you're very cheeky on your bio and like just, you know, funny online like that. And I was like, okay, autonomy. I love this idea. I love fitness and like being able to like, I think I heard it on Tim Ferriss's podcast. Maybe it was one of the doctors he had on. This guy has the idea of the centenarian Olympics where he can like pick up his grandchildren from a dead squat or, you know, lift groceries off the ground. You want to be able to do these things functionally. But I'm interested in your take on like this idea of autonomy and how we relate fitness to the rest of our life. Right. So, I mean, on the broad level, of course, like we have this idea of fitness that I think culturally, you know, these days comes to us like by way of like the lineage of like the Jane Fonda VHS, right? Or Arnold Schwarzenegger pumping iron. Like one of those two schools really is what most fitness things are. And then there's CrossFit, which is literally the cross, the hybrid of those things, which it, it's not new. Like in the 80s, we had cross training. It was literally the same thing. Um, but this idea that uh, fitness means doing a thing. Fitness is a branded activity. Fitness is a set of approved movements that you do in a place dedicated to fitness, wearing fitness clothes, and then you go have a fitness drink, right? This is, and I, I run a business. I am a capitalist pig, but this is, this is not what, this is not necessary. This is people selling you an idea of what you should be doing with your recreational time. Uh, you don't need special spandex to lift heavy things. You don't. It's not necessary. It's not. Do required. I have to give away my collection then? <laughs> I mean, if you like them, keep them. <laughs> you know, I, I have three pairs of Lululemon shorts that are excellent and they discontinued the damn things. I loved them. And so I actually, the, the third pair I had to find on eBay, like it, I searched for a year for these shorts because they don't make them anymore. I was so happy to have them. So, I mean, I love my spandex as much as the next guy is what I'm saying, but it's not necessary. 
you know? And so we have this idea of fitness as being this thing, but really what is fitness is being fit, being capable to do the things we need to do, right? The fitness level that is required for me or you, I don't know you very well, but probably is not the same as the fitness level that is required for a professional athlete or for uh, someone doing physical labor, for somebody who is you know throwing boxes for UPS. These are different levels of fitness are required for different things. And you know, fitness is only one sort of continua of life. There's other things that we have to be good at. So if we measure our fitness, if we like, let's say, you know, white collar working class people measure our fitness against people who are professional athletes, we're not going to measure up, right? But if you take Serena Williams and ask her to, I don't know, SEO optimize a blog post, she could probably learn it. But she's not going to be able to do some of the things that we take for granted too, right? And I think this is really important to recognize is that fitness is not like there's a there's one definition of fitness, there's one pinnacle of fitness, and we should all be striving to, to reach that exact single definition every time. Autonomy means you decide what is right for you and you go after it, right? It's that intersection of freedom and decision, right? So physical autonomy is being able to do that with your body. It means that your body isn't limiting you and restricting your options for the way you want to live your life. I would love to go hang out with you at the lake this weekend, but my back hurts and I don't want to embarrass myself and I don't want to be the guy sitting on the sideline uh, because it'll make everyone uncomfortable, right? You don't have the physical autonomy to do the thing you really want to do with your friends, right? Uh, Yeah, you can't pick up your grandkids or you can't weed the garden, we, we have a lot of our clients in our company that tell us that they they are better, they enjoy gardening more because their knees don't hurt when they squat down all the time. I That was not something that I thought of when we started this company, but it's something I hear a lot and I totally get. And I think that is what we made this for without realizing it. So that's physical autonomy. That's kind of like where these things are going. And so we try to teach people how to develop the right level of the fitness they need. And part of that is for them deciding what kind of movements are important to them, what kind of things they need, and also letting go of the expectation that they're going to be Steph Curry, you know, or that they're going to be, they're going to look like a bodybuilder or something like that. You're not, unless you make that your thing. Yeah, man, this is uh, actually very timely for me because as I was planning out my own fitness goals for this year, I was going like, I'm really tired a lot of the time. I'm up really early. I am at the gym four or five days a week. And like, I'm not getting the exact results that I was hoping for. And like, if I want those, I'm going to have to go even harder. I'm trying to build this new business now. I'm trying to connect with my wife and kids. I'm trying to like be chill and actually like recover. And so like in terms of seasons, you were saying like, this ain't my season to get jacked. You know, like I'm fit, right. I'm, I'm, I'm really fit actually, but like, I really want to be jacked. I want to have like, you know, three inches on my shoulders. I want to have three more inches on my chest. I want to see my abs a little bit more. And am I willing to make the trade-off in everything else or is like good enough, good enough? And is that sort of the idea of what you're getting at here? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's good enough, which is an important sort of thing that every person needs to find for themselves all the time. There's also just the fact that 
I don't care what Cordon Bleu school you went to, man. You cannot cook on six burners at a time. No chef is that good. So we all have goals. We all have things we want to do. But you can't really be pursuing all these different things at the same time with more than 100 divided by that many things percent of focus. It's just reality. And I say this sometimes and people are like, oh, but you should always strive for more. You know, uh, give it 110%. That sounds nice, but there's literally only 100%. Percent means out of 100. You can't have more than that. There's 24 hours. And yeah, we can all decide how to use these things, but you take away your sleep and it's going to come back to bite you. It's going to hurt. You know, uh, these things are important. And again, like not to, not to be too on the nose, but as a father, I have to be sure that I'm, I'm living the best example that I can too, right? It's not something that I can I can put off and I can say, well, I'm, I'm going to make this sacrifice for this time, and then later on, I'll I'll explain to her why I did it. That's that's not the way it works. She's living through this with me, and if she sees me sacrificing my health for some external uh, green survival tickets or or uh, status symbols or something, she's going to know where my values truly lie, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's really important for me to know that. One, I, I just realistically can't be the best at all these things. You can't, you know, sorry, man. But you know that you're you're having to make choices, though. And that's the thing is making choices. A lot of this, you can do it all, just go harder. This is not actually good advice and not in the fact that hustle is bad. Hustle is great. But the reason it's bad advice is because it's trying to sell you this BS idea that you can avoid making tough decisions in life. Having it all does isn't about having it all. Having it all is avoiding giving up anything. And we can't do that. We have to give things up. I gave up having a six pack. I feel fine about it. I run a fitness <laughs> company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially as dads, man. Like this is this is just it. And I love this idea. And part of what I've been looking at, and we're gonna finish up in just a sec, uh, is like balancing on this pendulum of healing and softness and gentleness. And then like, you got to get shit done. You got to be in the trenches, feet on the ground with your kids, like leading them. So how do you balance these things? And, you know, I think there's a very mindful, intentional way to do that so that you can then go to these places, but it's very hard to like use balance as a motivating factor. So right. I guess like the la- the last question I'll, I'll ask you is like, how are you motivating to make these changes? Cause I love what I hear. And it's also like, well, if I'm just doing, I know I said good enough before, but if I'm just doing good enough to someone who hasn't actually done the work and I say good enough, cause like I do the work every day, right. but if you're just like, well, I guess it's just getting honest with yourself. Like how do you motivate people who come to you? I, well, I mean, honestly, I, I try to avoid motivating people. I, I think motivated. Yeah. I think that it, you have to, you have to come to a place where you're intrinsically motivated and maybe there are people that can, that can guide people to that or can, can give them experiences that will help them find that faster. I don't really know what those are. I'll just be really honest. I feel that, uh, the things that I'm able to do work best for people that have that motivation, um, or, or at least are getting close to it. But I, I really think it has to come from yourself. And it, again, like you've mentioned several times, introspection, really looking at what's important. I think that is 
absolutely key. You have to, you know, give yourself some time to make space uh, and whatever vague new agey things I can say here. I don't know, but you do, you need to, you need to look at yourself and really make some hard decisions about what's important to you and give yourself permission to let them change. Give yourself permission to make them be temporary. If I'm going to decide that this is a key factor in my life, I can decide it is right now. And it, I don't have the pressure that I'm I'm dedicating the rest, you know, the next 60 years to a singular idea of reaching the pinnacle of absolute BS. You know, that's you can you can have a goal for a year or a couple of months and you can pursue it, and then you can get to a level where you've gotten 80% proven to yourself that you can do it and that you can be satisfied with that, and you can either go the other 20% or you can be like, cool. You know, so like giving yourself permission to make, make your motivations be temporary, I think is completely great. That's so, so good. Let's leave it on that one because this man, <laughs> like when, when I was thinking about like making the hard choice to move to Thailand, for example, the first time I had to go like, oh, well, if this doesn't work, I could just make another choice. And it's like, we, right. we often make these choices as though it's the only chance we'll ever get. When someone is changing, like fundamentally making a shift in their life, it's like, oh my goodness, if I don't get this right. But like, if you make the one change, then you can make another change and another change. Like just keep going with what feels right combined with what you know is really necessary for you to grow or to feel authentic. So Ooh, Absolutely. That's a great one. There's a lot of little lessons in here, man. Thank you for spending the time and thanks for just riffing, really. This was awesome. Sure, yeah. I mean, yeah. like I said, I think about this stuff a lot, so it's fun to talk about and you know, I I enjoy, you know, sharing any anything that I I have learned from it. And where can people find more about you? I know you've got a business. You've also got a niche martial arts blog, which I thought was very interesting. <laughs> uh or maybe you're on Twitter, who knows. Where can people find you? Uh, I mean, I'm on Twitter, but I don't really post very much. The best, the best way to see the 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 thing that I'm actually putting most of my energy into is uh, gmb.io. Uh, that's that's our company, our business. Uh, we talk about fitness, but it's fitness as part of a path to all these things I've been talking about. It's uh, part of an integrated idea of of what autonomy really is. And we develop the physical side of that so it can get out of the way of the other sides of it for you. Beautiful. Okay, man. I really appreciate the time. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. It means the world. To find out more about everything that we talked about in the episode today, including show notes, resources, and links to subscribe, leave a review, work with us, go to dad.work slash pod. That's D-A-D dot W-O-R-K slash P-O-D. Type that into your browser, just like a normal URL, dad.work slash pod. You'll find everything there you need to become a better man, a better partner, and a better father. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.